New school year starting. We're going back to school, and you're going to recognize the guy we're going to be talking to. You speak, we listen. Conversations connecting people. This is the Chuck Williams Show. Welcome to this edition of the Chuck Williams Show. Let's go right at it. Our guest is Chancellor Sonny Perdue. He's Chancellor of the University System of Georgia. He's also been a former governor, a former secretary of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, state senator. You've done a lot of stuff, Governor. Well, we have. We've had a blessed uh, career and a great life. You you are in this new role. You've only been in it for, I guess, about, what, four months now? A little over four months, yes. Um, you know, you just come back from Washington. You had served in the Trump administration. And then you come back and take what arguably is one of the most important state jobs in Georgia, which is the chancellor of the university system and its 26 institutions of higher learning and all sorts of other stuff that falls under the purview of the university system. Did you think about, say, hey, I want to do something else? Or do you, do you ever think about just going back to Bonaire and sitting on the farm and saying, man, I've had a great life? Chuck, I'll, let me give you a funny story about my LinkedIn profile. May answer that question best. When I came back from D.C., I put a LinkedIn profile, and it went like this. Born a dirt farmer, tried a couple other jobs, but never could escape. So I have no idea about this one, obviously. Since i become chancellor, I have changed it to uh, excited about the job of chancellor, which may be the most impactful job I've ever had. So I think that gets to answering your question about how I view this role at, the, at this point in time. Your institutions issued in 2021 about 73,000 diplomas. Um, you are a product of this system you're now managing, right? I mean, does that help you knowing you came out of UGA, University of Georgia, and you're a product of what you're now trying, you're now leading? Let me tell you what really helped. Well, I came into uh, state senator when Zell Miller was elected. That was the, the beginnings of the Hope Scholarship. And what Zell Miller taught me was that the connection between economic development and higher education really was a confluence of, of evidence that needed to be worked upon in Georgia. We, uh, we had just come off the Olympics, and uh, Georgia was in this uh, uh, ascendancy of, of reputation, and we wanted to make sure that our higher education system met that challenge. That's where I learned uh, the, the confluence of higher education and economic development, and we've seen that ever since that period of time. So I did believe, and when I was my second term of, uh, of the state Senate, uh, Pierre Howard was the lieutenant governor. He said, Sonny, you're not going to get any big committees. What would you like to do? I said, Lieutenant Governor, I believe higher education is where I can make the most difference as a, as a second term senator. And he allowed me to chair the higher education committee. That's where I got the love for that. My mother was a school teacher for 42 years, so it's a little bit in the DNA as well, understanding that education, higher education, has the ability to transcend and transform one's heritage uh, and wherever they've come from into a better life. You know, would you consider the Hope Scholarship vote perhaps the most important vote you took as a state senator? Well, there were a lot of them. It certainly was one of the most impactful for the future of Georgia uh, going forward. And I think, again, Georgia gained a reputation for doing it right. We saw we had seen Florida uh, kind of uh, pit, pitter away the money elsewhere. But when uh, the governor pitter, pitter and, uh, away is a and nice the legislature way to put it. kind of uh, 
made it uh, with uh, higher education and then uh, a voluntary K-4 uh, uh, kindergarten than people. That That's what makes it continue to be successful today. We're going to celebrate here shortly $25 billion is, uh, is what the Hope uh, Scholarship, what the lottery has made to students in Georgia. Twenty Over 30 years, almost a billion dollars a year. And you think about that kind of input uh, for voluntary contributions through, uh, uh, through the lottery has been pretty amazing. You know, one of the things you look at is how the flagship universities, Georgia, Georgia Tech, have risen. I mean, you know, I was looking at the, a profile of the this year's incoming freshman class at UGA. The GPA was something insane, like 4.2. I mean, when you're looking at that, the University of Georgia has now getting to be on a par with North Carolina and other state institutions that are of the highest quality, right? No question about it, Chuck. In fact, there are very few states that have two public universities in the top 25. I think Georgia's number 16 now and Tech is higher. And and to think about two public universities there, and you're right, the biggest political problem that rises now is uh, legacy students can't get admitted because of the competition with uh, across the country, across the state. I mean, 1,500 SAT, and you don't get into school. That's, that's the challenge we're facing here. But the good news is, Chuck, we've got 24 other public institutions in Georgia that provide a great education, Columbus State being one of those, where students can go and get a world-class education there, or if they want to start there, then they can transfer to those uh, flagships if they want that diploma to read Georgia Tech or the University of Georgia. You know, I've heard people say that an engineering degree from Georgia Tech on a Hope Scholarship or Zell Miller Scholarship may be the best educational value in America. Um, oh, I think that's I think that's absolutely correct. When you look at uh, when you look at what uh, what that degree pays, in fact, that brings me to something I want to talk to you about today. I hope you've already seen it and seen the news about the new website Georgia Degrees Pay. I, that's exactly where. Uh, People can compare about the benefit and the economic advantage of a higher education uh, degree from one of our 26 institutions in Georgia. I played on that side a little bit this morning, and it's yeah. fascinating because you can go in and say, okay, this is what it's going to cost me to go to Columbus State or UGA or Georgia Southern. You know, this is the degree I'm going to going to get, and this is my earning potential. You know, that's analytics, and a lot of these kids now are looking at earning potential in a way that maybe you and I didn't years ago. They're they're really seriously looking at what the job pays because of the impact of student debt, right? Absolutely, and then we want this is just the beginning, Chuck. We want to help give students and parents more information as we look to help them do self assessments, uh, taking their transcripts and de- de- defining them where they can be safely successful or where they can reach out to another level there. We've got four different sectors of universities here in Georgia. We've got our access colleges there and uh, with associate degrees and some have bachelor degrees. We've got our state university sector and we've got the comprehensive uh, universities. And then we've got uh, the research universities, which are tech and Georgia, as I mentioned, but also Augusta and uh, Georgia State. 
You know, it, it's interesting. I didn't know much about Georgia State uh, University uh, 20 years ago. I just knew it was the you, – you rode by buildings that were part of the campus when you were going down to cover the General Assembly or something. But I had a daughter attend Georgia State, and she graduated from the Andrew Young School, uh, Andrew Young School of Public Policy, and I, she was probably one. She was a Columbus High School kid out of a magnet program. She was probably one of four or five in her class that went to Georgia State. Now mm-hmm. I'm hearing they're fifteen, twenty, twenty-five that are going to Georgia State out of schools like Columbus High. Georgia State has truly benefited in a way, and then this is a question, has benefited in a way because of UGA and Tech's rise, right? To some degree, but on their own, Chuck, don't dismiss the fact that they have gained a national reputation in really social mobility, taking students that maybe uh, weren't going to go to Georgia and Georgia Tech and provide them a, a nationally acclaimed uh, uh, student success model here of, of moving them into there. The Georgia State uh, degree is is becoming more and more. You, you've got to understand, it, it's one of our later comers here. Now, it doesn't have the history of tech in Georgia, but it's very much a rising research university there that is uh, is what will become, I think, another flagship, already has been with the student success model using predictive analytics of how they can catch these students that are having some issues early on and keep them in school with that diploma and a very affordable diploma and uh, graduating on time. It's pretty a it's pretty amazing story. You'll hear more about it later. I'm sure. And one of the things about Georgia State, I think Georgia State and Columbus State are similar in one way. They are both incredibly diverse universities. Um, and if you look right now, Columbus State, and I'm not sure how this happened, but has become a institution of choice for kids out of the metro area, that particularly kids that may be first-time college students, uh, first-generation college students. Um, you know, that's the beauty of the system. It, the system has gotten more diverse because of hope and because of the opportunities, right? Oh, absolutely. You look at Columbus, which you described. We were there Friday uh, beginning the presidential search for a new president. But that uh, I told the community there, uh, we had community representatives, faculty, student representatives, staff, and, and almost across the spectrum. But I said, I can't, I can't point to anywhere else in Georgia where there's a tighter relationship between the higher education institution, Columbus State, and the community. It's part and parcel of the same. You know Columbus is a very unusual uh, community, both in the generosity, philanthropic uh, uh, effort. That's been directed to Columbus State as well as many other places uh, in West uh, Georgia. But we've got we've got those kind of, not exactly that story, but we've got similar stories in Valdosta. We've got similar stories in Kennesaw, University of North Georgia. There are just many uh, opportunities there across the state, but it is a destination choice. It's not just a settle for a degree any longer with the opportunities that kids in West Georgia have there at Columbus State, just up the road in Carrollton, at West Georgia. There are just a lot of tremendous opportunities. And south of here, you got Georgia Southwestern and That's Albany right. State. Um, so, you know, if 
So you were in you were in here on Friday, and I know we're, I was going to get into the search, but I'll go ahead and jump into it right now. Um, obviously, uh, Dr. Chris Markwood retired. Uh, Dr. John Fuchko is the interim right now, um, and there is a active search with a large search committee that's going right now. What are you looking for in the next leader at Columbus State University? Uh, simply put, the very best person we can find uh, to lead Columbus State. It's a got a great future and an opportunity. It's one of the most important, not the most important thing that I'm responsible for, Chuck, and the Board of Regents is responsible for. Uh, you may remember I'm a Jim Collins good to great kind of guy, and it starts with the people. You know, we want good facilities and we want good opportunities, good curricula, good academic programs. But that all arises from the leadership you have on campus. So we simply want the very best person that they are. The committee is charged Friday with developing all the parameters there of what they want in that leader for Columbus specifically. Because I could say that about every institution. We want the best. But that uh, that committee, their first charge will be to get a detailed job description of what qualities and capabilities they want that leader to have to merge and to mix in with the community at large, with the campus community, with the faculty, with the staff, with the students, but it's, it's also with the community there that's been, that Columbus State has meant so much to Columbus State. You know, what's interesting to me in looking at it, and you touched on it just a minute ago, the philanthropic area. I mean, there's been hundreds of millions of dollars by this community poured into that institution. And essentially, they build the buildings and they give them to you to operate as the university system. Or they acquire the buildings, in some cases, like the old newspaper building. But, you know, it's fascinating that you probably have somebody who has to be a you know, a little more in tune with the community here than you may have in other places. Is that, is that, is that something you're kind of aware of in this search? Certainly. That's why we've asked this committee. The first job is to really define that. And honestly, I was pleasantly surprised the other day with the faculty representatives as they went around with a short uh, clip about what they'd like to see in a president. Uh, many of the, uh, Many of the faculty representatives mentioned the fact a relationship with the community, and they mentioned specifically the donor community, the alumni community of Columbus State. Columbus State is building its own reputation with its alumni. We had, uh, uh, fortunately, we had Jimmy Yancey there on that search committee, still staying by the stuff, as a graduate of Columbus State, rising to be CEO of a major company there, and yet still dedicating himself to making sure we get the right people in place. You know, Mr. Yancey's name was one of the ones that jumped out off the page when I was looking at it. But like Marvin Crumbs, the principal at Columbus High, who's a former Columbus State basketball player. So you've got – it looks like a really interesting committee that, that I just the names I know on it will be in tune with make, making the best – Best well, decision possible. Stephen, Stephen Turner representing the WC Bradley company. And, you know, you can't get much more Columbus than that. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, you know, one of the things that is interesting to me is there's financial issues clearly at Columbus State and other institutions throughout the system. COVID has driven enrollment down in many places. Um, 
you brought in a guy, uh, Dr. John Fusco, to be the interim, and he's very interesting to me. I did a pot. He was on my podcast a, couple, a month or so ago, and one of the things is, he said, "You know, I'm an interim, sure, but if you're in the job, do the job." And I thought that was a really interesting approach for uh, interim to take while he's got to find these $9 million and, and probably is going to involve not renewing contracts and stuff like that. I mean, that you know, if you're in the job, do the job. Is that what you want to see from an interim in a situation like this? For, from an interim and the permanent, certainly. But okay. uh, John Fuchko got a lot of accolades last Friday. The community has embraced him. I think he's embraced the community, understanding that while he won't be there permanently, is uh, he's doing the job currently. I was also impressed with how he's brought the faculty along with some of the fiscal challenges that you mentioned. There are going to be some uncomfortable decisions, but uh, in the shared governance model, he's uh, he's told them about them. It's been transparent about them, and they've embraced that as well. So John Fuchko uh, is an interesting guy, brings the discipline of military training as from the National Guard there, and brings that discipline, get it done kind of uh, uh, a mentality to the job of academics, which is really refreshing. It was really interesting. On Saturday night, I was at a social function at the National Infantry Museum and um, broad community event. And it was very interesting to see the uh, the uh, interim president of Columbus State University in full military dress. <laughs> that was, it, it threw you off a little bit. <laughs> Um, yeah, that would have been good, though. <laughs> yeah, oh, it, it. I mean, it plays well in Columbus. I guarantee you that. Um, let's talk one more thing about Columbus State. When when you look at Columbus State and you look at where it fits into the system, obviously state universities are in a little different spot than the ones that are above them on the food chain. Right. But if you look at our teachers, any student that graduates from the education program at CSU is going to get a job in the Muskogee County School District if they want it. I mean, if you look at the Muskogee County School District, it is populated heavily with CSU grads. The Our hospitals and our doctor's offices have nurses and, and technicians that have come out of Columbus State and Columbus State, but Columbus State. And... Our workforce depends on that university in a way that may be a little different than a Macon or a Savannah or even an Augusta. Am I right? I think you're probably right for Columbus. I think it has more of an indigenous uh, talent pool flow that stays in the community than many other uh, of Valdosta or Carrollton, West Georgia, uh, and Augusta, some that you mentioned even there. I think you're probably correct in that, but that's a good thing in that uh, uh, as you see this uh, uh, this relationship bill, uh, the community will let uh, the superintendent, as you mentioned, uh, uh, super, or the principal will let the uh, leadership at Columbus State know if their graduates are not making the grade. The hospitals will let their that feedback loop is important because they're staying right there. That talent flow is right there in Columbus. So, you know, the quality of higher education they're getting and the university, any university president ought to be attuned to that uh, as that feedback they get from the users of that, those graduates. 
Very good point. Very, very good point. Switching gears quickly, in addition to the academic side, athletics has become an incredibly big business. And in California, Governor Newsom kind of pitched a fit and because when UCLA pulled out of the Pac-12 and went to the um, Big Ten, they did so without consulting him, who is essentially the chairman of the Board of Regents. Um, as everything is going on now with the realignment in the college football, you obviously have major players in Georgia and Georgia Tech, but specifically Georgia. How is the university system handling that with UGA to, you know, I mean, I'm sure UJ is not leaving the SEC, but as everything's going on, how you how do you handle the business of college athletics, specifically college football, and you do have the defending national champ? The good news is I think we've got much better relationships with our universities and our state government than apparently California had in that regard. Uh, we discuss this. It's my job to talk with the presidents about even this area because the financial impact on these universities as well as the brand is, is pretty significant and very significant, as you mentioned. And so it's important. That's part and parcel of who the University of Georgia is or even Georgia Tech. And uh, uh, both President Cabrera and President Moorhead and I have talked about these conferences. We're looking at a situation now, even downstream from that, at Kennesaw State over potential conference changes. It's affecting many places in that way. West Georgia, others. Georgia Southern. The, the Georgia Southern. The athletic part of a campus experience has become uh, has become really part of who that university is. You remember you 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 remember when Eric Russell went out to Georgia Southern, started that relationship. It was a renaissance. I mean, Georgia Southern was a great school, fairly sleepy in southeast Georgia. But when uh, Eric Russell went out there, started that football program. And, and what it's done at West Georgia, Kennesaw, other places, Valdosta, all that, it, it's important. And uh, the relationship of where they play is important. But uh, my job is to maintain relationships with the president. So we talk about those because uh, we don't think an athletic director should be making those decisions without the uh, confidence and the uh, consultation with the president. And I would hope the presidents would also uh, consult with us and the Board of Regents. I want to ask you a hypothetical, and you know, comment me, comment me if you want. You've no commented me before, so I'm used to it. But I'll go ahead and say no comment. <laughs> would you like to see Tech consider a move to the SEC? I'm sorry, say again. Would you like to see Georgia Tech consider a move to the SEC? Well, that would be interesting, uh, certainly, if that opportunity presented itself. And uh, we would love to have them, I guess, back in there, right? And, yeah, back in there. So, in that regard, but uh, uh, that will be determined later on. Obviously, I know that uh, the ACC is trying to determine whether what, what's going to happen with Clemson and other things. But uh, I think the SEC would be a welcoming home for Georgia Tech if that if that worked out. Okay. And that's no pronouncement. Obviously, oh, I don't no. know of any discussions going on along that that range. So the answer is no comment. But if, the, but if the SEC does expand, obviously Florida State, Clemson, Miami, you know, North Carolina, I mean, and Georgia Tech would be teams that would buy, okay, do you consider this? And and I'm throwing it out purely as a hypothetical, purely. Yeah, as well, a hypothetical. hypothetically, if we wind up with uh, 
oligarchy of two two conferences, really the Big Ten and the SEC, then uh, probably a lot of schools in there. Yeah, and exactly, exactly. Um, Want to switch gears again? Um, you and I have a little bit of a relationship. Uh, uh, you were my travel agent and took me to Seoul, South Korea, in two thousand and five. Uh, I was part of the. I was a journalist on the official party that went there, where you signed the deal to bring Kia, the Kia plant, to West Point, Georgia. Um, Seventeen years later. And you look at what has happened in West Point, LaGrange, even as far as Auburn, Opelika on the Alabama side, and certainly Lynette and the places that are right there. Did you know it was going to do that? I don't know that we ever could have contemplated it, what it is today, Chuck. I think we were hoping, but I don't think we allowed ourselves even to think uh, of what we see today. You know that we uh, – we were brought, Georgia was kind of brought into the economic development uh, pay for business kind of later when we saw Alabama, South Carolina on both sides of us. Alabama we, had already bought Hyundai and I believe BMW had gone to South Carolina by the that's time. Exactly, that's exactly right. So we either had to get in or, or, or get out. And we knew that Georgia had a lot of advantages with Hartsfield, Atlanta, the capital city of the South and others, but we weren't getting our share of job creating companies. So well, we decided to get in. This was a big bite for us. So uh, it was a risk taking to some degree, but when we'd seen what had happened with our neighbors to the East and the West, uh, we felt like it was a, a reasonable uh, decision to do that, but no way could we have contemplated what uh, what's happening. But again, uh, you may remember that uh, uh, we put a training center over there that went so well that the Korean uh, Kia took that same model back to their to Korea and uh and teach essentially them a quick train start there. It was essentially a quick start operation, right? That's right, yes. Um, you know, one of the things that you I covered that whole deal in, in fortunate enough to go to Seoul to see that piece of it. But the one thing that I still think is the most amazing part of this, and I, I will tell people this when they ask me about it, when they find out I've covered it from the beginning, is you were blunt early on. You said this will not be done through eminent domain, government taking private land. But you had to acquire, what was it, 40 or 50 tracks, 2,000, 2,600 acres, I mean, you know, in many cases, second, third, fourth, fifth generation family farms. Are you that, proud? Of, are you proud of the fact that you did it without government seizing any land? Oh, absolutely. That was really the mantra. You stated it, but uh, I'm a believer in the private property rights, and I'm also a believer in economic development. But when those butt up to one another, uh, I don't like uh, I don't like taking land for economic development purposes. I think. Uh, there's a willing seller and a willer buyer, but when land has been in, you know, four or five, six generations, that's a that's a legacy, that's a heritage there that uh, works so well over there, and it really, uh, uh, Congressman Drew's dad was really the key to that, Mr. Ferguson, at that time, putting those packages together, but also the people, that attitude around uh, uh, that whole West Point area about 
they knew that you you know what West Point had been. It had been that textile town, and they were seeing their kids go off to Atlanta and elsewhere with no jobs. So the people who owned that land made decisions that were altruistic for the future generations to have jobs that could stay there where future kids, children and grandchildren, could have a possibility of working there rather than having to go somewhere else. So it was a it was a wonderful, magical kind of thing that happened that uh, I was so that was really what I was most proud of. And when you look at it now, I mean, not just the direct jobs, and it's what, 2,500 direct or something like that in the plant, but you yeah. look at all the suppliers, and then you look, I mean, they just announced the Kia seat manufacturer in Phoenix City. Um, you know, on the Alabama side and the Georgia side, there was a lot of benefit. And, you know, and I think now, I don't. I haven't met anybody that thought it was a bad idea today. I mean, you know, hindsight's pretty good. Chuck, I was in D.C. at the Super Bowl, but I took a lot of pride in that Telluride uh, ad. You know, proud to be made in West Point, Georgia, there for the Super Bowl, uh, for all those people to see. That's state branding. I think that laid on with what Governor Kemp has been able to do with these other announcements coming in here. All that builds upon itself. Ready for business. Number one state for business. Those kind of things. A higher education system is uh, is part of that whole story, that whole branding of a talent flow of what uh, what companies can get here. That's that confluence we started talking about early of higher education and economic development. When you look, um, Kia is now looking at expanding with an electric car plant on the other side of the state near Savannah, um, and that will probably come about during your tenure in the chancellor's office. Do you think you are uniquely positioned to help with the training programs and some of the educational components that are going to be needed because of your role as the governor when the West Point plant was built? Well, I think so. When you think about the transition of jobs and the robotics, these are not going to be unskilled workers looking on a factory floor. These are going to be engineers and coders and IT people and all these kind of things that are going to require significant higher education skills in so many ways. So absolutely, this university system will be part of it. I'm sure as the governor and our economic development team recruited and gave uh, Hyundai Kia the reasons to come to Georgia, I'm sure the talent uh, outflow was the reason. When economic development, Chuck, you may mem- remember the number one question is not where, but where we're going to get the people. And that was uh, well, that's one of the things we sold with West Point. These are dedicated, loyal workers that uh, had a history of uh, of, of great uh, community work there. They showed the up and made the textiles, and they wanted uh, they wanted similar opportunities there. But these jobs have changed, and it requires a significant educational opportunity, and not only that, but continuing education opportunities. We continue to prepare students for the jobs that we don't even know about yet. There's no question about that. I mean, what do you know about Georgians that you didn't know as a senator, you didn't know as a governor, you didn't know when you were in D.C. in the administration and, you know, what do you know about the people in this state? 
I think what I learned mostly about Georgians, it was in my terms as governor, we I had the great twin recessions, if you remember, Chuck, from 2003 to 2011. And what I learned was Georgians don't quit. It's a whatever it takes kind of attitude. And I think that's what the world is discovering about our citizenry here. It's persistence. It's uh, it's it's commitment and doing whatever it takes to make stuff work. Uh, we had uh, we had significant revenue uh, disadvantages during that period of time. But uh, uh, our, our teacher workforce, we weren't able to give raises, our law enforcement, our health care, all those stayed by the stuff for the good of our, their neighbors and their communities and the state as a whole. And we benefited. And you've seen the growth after 2011 uh, for 10 or 12 years now. Uh, what's what that happened? The, the pruning that we had to do during that period of time set us up for great new growth uh, uh, now that we're experiencing even now. Are you a little envious of Go- of Governor Kent when you look over and see a six billion dollar surplus? <laughs> a little bit, just a little. <laughs> you, you didn't you didn't have that luxury, did you? <laughs> we on the last six months of my my governorship, we were calculating day by day we're going to have enough cash to finish the year. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and that kind of goes into what I want to talk about next. Is you were the first Republican governor. You, yeah. you beat Roy Barnes, stunned him, um, stunned a lot of people in Georgia. And you became the first Republican governor, and you started what has been a 20-year run. Uh, right now, it looks like it could be very close to going the other way. You know, it's going to be a tight race. I mean, the governor's race is going to be a tight race. You have a Senate race. Two Senate seats have already gone Democratic. House and Senate remain strongly Republican, but you were the you were the last piece of the Republican takeover of the George, of Georgia government. Have you thought about what that means when you write that into history? Well, I haven't tried to compl- contemplate it that much, uh, Chuck. But I will tell you, our mission was to take our vision of Republicanism, which meant independent liberty, uh, smaller government and uh, more self-responsibility and put it out to a citizenry. I think the citizens of Georgia were ready for that. They wanted that, as we saw the other party nationally moving away from that to more of dependence. Now we've seen even more of that, where the Democratic Party has to to some degree become, uh, many people would characterize as more elitist than the Republican Party for the working person. I'm characterizing others, not editorializing there today. But I think, again, uh, I, I take great pride in the fact that we uh, were able to manage those downturns by virtue of that, and then whatever it took going forward. I think uh, that's the that's the benefit. My goal as governor was to take the principles of what I thought state government ought to be, and to make what what citizens really want out of government is for it to work. They don't care whether you're blue or red; they want it to work. And, and we took a, a commission for New Georgia, you may remember, talking about business principles that ought to work in Georgia and implemented many of those kind of things, knowing where our cars were, how much real estate we had, all that kind of business sort of principles. And I think that's what's worked in Georgia. Citizens get it when their government works for them, irrespective of the national winds of, of ideology and politics. Uh, citizens want their government to work. My goal, my number one goal as Georgian, as governor, 
was to leave it where citizens would want more of that kind of government. And I think they've gotten it. And I think they recognize that. When you look, you know, you talk about citizens want things that work. I think it's hard to say, I mean, you're managing now one of the pieces of our government that arguably citizens across the state would say works, the higher education system. I mean, our higher education system, because of hope and because of other reasons, it's working right now, right? It is working, but it's going to work even better. Uh, This is not uh, uh, talking about anything in the past that's going on, but you may know I'm one of continuous improvement. In fact, I'm trying to teach the... uh, the whole university system, a little mantra called good, better, best. Never let it rest till our good is better and our better's best. And so I think this Georgia Degrees Pay is a great example of giving students and parents information where they can make the best decisions that they can. We know that uh, uh, we've got data coming out. You may have seen the press release last year where the kids coming out of high school now can make $20 an hour. But what does that mean in five years? You know, the lifetime earnings for someone with a a four-year degree is going to be almost a million dollars more than a high school education. That's value. And that's what we want to provide to Georgia. That's quality of life at the end of the day. It is. Absolutely. I want to ask you one other question that kind of spins off the political side of this. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen a person in a more interesting situation than you were when Governor Kemp was nominating you to be the chancellor mm-hmm. and your cousin, who you're close to as well, is mm-hmm. running against him. I mean, how did you walk that line? Because that had to be a very, very narrow and tight line. Well, it was. So David and I and uh, Mary and I met with David and Bonnie, and uh, uh, we encouraged him to uh, – to really get on his knees and determine what he needed to do. I, I, I explained very clearly, although I supported David strongly when I was uh, in D.C. and in the runoff there in his Senate uh, acquisition to, of being elected, I did dis- explain to him if I were being contemplated for the job of the Chancellor of the University System, which is a nonpartisan, nonpolitical job, I would not be able to be uh, supportive in uh, virtually any way in that regard. I know you hear those kind of things, but you always want. And so I had to be very careful, and I'm very careful now, not to be drawn in the political arena. Uh, and it's kind of difficult because people know me, obviously having been governor, senator, governor, and then in the Trump administration, they want to ascribe politics to me. But higher education doesn't know blue and red. It just knows opportunity. You know, and that's the interesting part of this is people that know you say you're a political animal, but you have been moved into a, I mean, you were, you were a Democrat in the state Senate, became a Republican, then became the first Republican governor, served in the Trump administration. You know, you've had a lot of jobs that have had to rely on politics to, to get them, to hold them, and to do them, quite frankly. In this job, this job's a little less political than the others. How do you take the politics out of it? Well, I think I, I think you you do it by I think the way everyone wishes we had the uh, the political side is treating everyone as fairly as you can and with the facts there, giving everybody an opportunity. What we're seeing, obviously, for kids in the first generation coming to school, welcoming them, and all demographics there. It is, uh, it's really, 
it's kind of the way I tried to act when I was governor is that I felt like every citizen, irrespective of where they came from, their ethnicity or their life circumstances, really wanted the great thing. They wanted safe communities. They want a place to, to work. They wanted better opportunities for their family. Now, that may not be true totally for everybody, but I think that's the great majority of American and Georgia citizens is that's what they wanted. And uh, I think that's what we tried to provide here, certainly from a higher education. You said it earlier. It's going to change the quality of life for the future of that person, but also their family, their children, their grandchildren. It'll make a difference for their their whole heritage. When you won that governor's race, there's no secret, you didn't have a lot of support out of the Columbus community um, and now, obviously, you're an incredible piece to the puzzle that will make this community stronger, you know, if the university gets stronger. Um, have you worked through the fact that, hey, you know, the, the corporate people in Columbus and stuff just didn't really support me when I first ran, but I've had to deal with that, and how have you dealt with that? Well, we dealt with it again by trying to treat everyone Equally, I, I didn't have a lot of support anywhere, Chuck. If you remember, I uh, I came in with not a lot of support, but that was a freedom to really do what I thought needed to be done in, in the realms of state government, and it really was liberating. So it was a regard. blessing. It was a blessing in some ways. It was indeed, and I hope that the people of Columbus have recognized over the years that during those eight years and then the uh, afterwards there. You know, we had the water dispute, obviously, but courts have, have finally uh, ruled on that uh, in that regard. And Georgia, and Georgia won the position you were championing from the very beginning. That's right. Yes. And Columbus but, wasn't, you know, wasn't on board with that early on. That was a complex issue for Columbus, but nonetheless, there was no retribution at all that, uh, uh, that I ever felt that way. As I, I, all I've done across my across this time in the state is to brag on Columbus and how they put their money where their mouth is. That's what the citizens of Columbus have done over the years. Whether it's the university system, whether it's Fort Benning, whether it's the growth of the uh, of the downtown, whether it's the river, all those kind of things. Columbus is very much a unique town that ought to be very proud of how they've been successful. But they haven't hoarded that money. They haven't kept it. They they invested it there locally and and nationally in order to make a better community, a better life for its citizens. Our downtown certainly a little different than it was 15, 20 years ago, and CSU is a huge reason for that. Absolutely, no question. Well, the community is a huge reason that CSU is a huge reason for that. Um, getting toward the end of this thing, I want to ask you real quick. You know, you have been of agribusinessman, you've been a dirt farmer, as you so eloquently said, and you've held all these incredible jobs across the board. What are you most proud of? What's what what's the I mean history's gonna you're gonna be a chapter in history. I know you're writing a chapter for IKEA history now for Seoul, but you're gonna be a chapter in Georgia his Georgia political history. What is the thing right now that you're most proud of, knowing that you still write in the book with the Chancellor's job? And that's why I said most impactful, Chuck. When people would ask me as I left the governor's office, what are you most proud? What bill are you most proud of? What What's your shining star there? And I would always come back to the fact it was the impact that we made on the young people that came in. We had a very aggressive 
robust governor's intern program. And you may know many of those governor's interns that came in during that period of time are still involved in significant uh, uh, parts of state government. One particular, Commissioner Rebecca Sullivan, started as my intern when I was uh, uh, president pro tem there. But the impact of teaching young people how to make life choices, we get those interns in the governor's office talking about real legislation. What are the pros? What are the cons? We'd have one intern have to do the protagonist and one have to do the antagonist of legislation there, teaching them how to make life choices. And that is absolutely the, uh, the best thing that I am most fulfilled about. That's why I do consider this job potentially the most impactful. 340,000 plus of those uh, people that we can impact by the life choices and our higher education, leveraging what teaching them to make good life choices and decisions, getting a good education or a career and a better life for their families. Well, Mr. Chancellor, we're at a point in this podcast, and I don't know if Lance briefed you on this, but it's, and I don't think I did him, so it's my bad, but we call it turn the tables. I've been asking you questions for years. Uh, you get to ask me a question now. I'm very curious to see where you'll go with this. Well, he didn't, he didn't brief me on that, but I guess again, uh, in your opinion, from your touch, you're, you're in touch with the community. What uh, what do you want in the leader of Columbus State? Frank <laughs> Frank Martin's retired and too old to do it, right? I, I mean, you know, I mean Frank now Frank Brown, excuse me, Frank yeah, Brown. Do, yeah, Dr. Yeah. Brown was the one who carried out the vision a lot of others had. Tim Meskine, I mean, he was controversial in ways, but Dr. Meskine was a strong leader. You know, if you could have a blend of maybe uh, Dr. Meskine and Dr. Brown, but I mean, somebody that obviously understands that the community, and you, I'm going to use your words, not mine, the community and the u- university are intertwined in a way that they are codependent on each other. I think that's the most important thing. You know, I'll be honest with you. I've been incredibly impressed with the way Dr. Fuchko has gone about this this task. I mean, you know, John Fuchko is a smart, smart dude. And he yeah. and I've been impressed with that. And I think, you know, I think some of what he's doing right now is is certainly what that committee should be looking at, both in the way he's doing it, how he's doing it, the the deliberate but urgent nature that he's bringing to it. It's impressive. Great. Well, good deal. Thank okay. you very much, Chuck. I've enjoyed the conversation. Okay. Thank you, Governor. You or Mr. Chancellor, be safe. Okay. Thank <laughs> you, sir. Thank you. You've been Bye-bye. watching. We're at a point now where I take this thing home. So governor the governor the Chancellor's got business to do, but we're gonna you can listen to the Chuck Williams show on WRBL.com Tuesday nights from seven to eight. You can get us on the podcast formats, iHeart, Spotify, and Apple. Also social media, Chuck Williams on Twitter, at Chuck Williams on Twitter, Chuck Williams WRBL on Facebook, and Chuck Williams 999 on uh, Instagram. Chancellor, thank you for joining us, sir. We hope to have you back again. We hope to have others back again next week for another edition of Chuck Williams Show. Thanks, Chuck.